morning's reading is taken from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. Um, watching Simon playing guitar and singing Here I Am to Worship this morning um, brought me back to kind of the early days of being in St Andrews. So for those who don't know me, my name's Helen. I've been, I'm just a kind of ordinary member of, of this church, but also part of the interregnum team. And um, I've been here for just over 20 years. And when we first came, we sang Here I Am to Worship. I must have been around that time. And my son, who was then about, I don't know, two or three, had this like plastic orange guitar. And he used to pretend to be the worship leader, but he got the words wrong. Um, and he used to sing, I'm not too bad to worship. And I actually do think, I was thinking about it, and I actually think those words were right. I don't think anybody here is too bad to worship. So I don't know if anyone needs to hear that, but there is nobody in this place or even on the planet, who is not too bad to worship. So we're continuing our sermon series looking at church. What is church? What's the point of us gathering here like we do? How does God view the church? And why are we called to be church? And I think some of us have been reflecting quite a lot on church since the pandemic, when so much of life, including church, was radically different for a time. In many ways, we were forced to step down. We no longer gathered together in person, but instead turned to Facebook and Zoom and YouTube. And that in itself brought a flexibility and a new way of gathering. Doing church from the couch in our pajamas with a coffee with the ability to pause or rewind or skip the sermon or you know, have a coffee halfway through or even watch on catch up. So it definitely had its benefits and we gathered new people too, even from overseas. But it didn't really feel like church, at least not to me. The pandemic meant closure of so many of our activities and weekly gatherings as we knew them. Although it also offered opportunity for creativity and doing things differently. For some it brought a greater or new isolation and disconnection. But for others it brought about the importance of connection to the fore and forced us to be more intentional and to think outside the box about how we connect with one another. At the same time, we um, as a church took the opportunity to step up and to step out. So we stepped up in prayer with our daily prayer um, meetings. We became more aware of the needs of those around us who work in the public sector, in our schools and hospitals and supermarkets. We stepped up pastorally, proactively seeking to keep in contact with people who would otherwise have been alone. And of course, we were at the forefront of the local effort to ensure that people didn't go without food through the work of the network. So without doubt, the pandemic was a tough time, but arguably a time of new and a different kind of growth and a time for reflection and re-evaluation. 
Since then, of course, as lockdown restrictions eased and just as things were starting to feel a bit more normal, we were faced with the departure of James, our vicar. And now we find ourselves plunged into another lengthy period of interregnum, of transition and uncertainty, having to dig deep using the resources we've got. And of course, we're part of the Fit for Mission process, which, um, where we review as a wider community what church should look like in our area. So in many ways, church feels different, and I'm sure many of us have felt that. When change is challenging and disorientating, we humans like our routine. We like to have some control. We like to know what's ahead. We're creatures of habit. And I think particularly after lockdown, we just so desperately wanted that old familiarity. Some of us have been tasked with leading on the parish profile, which is the document um, that tells the story of St Andrews, offering a potential vicar a snapshot of, of what we do and what we stand for as a church. And this has given us another opportunity to reflect again on who we are and why we're here. Why do we gather here week in, week out? Why do many of us give lots of our time and lots of our money? When life around us feel uncert feels uncertain and different, it often causes us to question our individual place in it all. And some of those are big questions. And I know from conversations I've had with some, some of you that there is a lot of wrestling and thinking and reflecting going on right now for some of us. And that's okay, that's healthy and it's necessary. And it's all part of growing up and moving forwards. So that's our context now as St Andrew's Church in Cudmore a time of transition, a time of recovery, a time of not knowing, a time of regrouping, and a time of challenge, a time of hope and optimism, and a new opportunity, but also maybe a time of doubt and uncertainty. So when we hear the words of Jesus this morning, that's the context into which he speaks, and context is really important. Whenever we read scripture, it's important we understand it from the context it was written, as well as the context we find ourselves in today. And perhaps our context is, not, context is not too dissimilar then to the context of those early disciples to whom we believe Jesus spoke these words directly. Just as they showed up when Jesus called them to the mountain in Galilee, we show up this morning. These were perhaps Jesus' fin final words to the disciples and were words spoken at a time of huge turmoil for these followers of Jesus, whose heads must have been completely battered. They had just had three years following Jesus, this charismatic, endearing stranger who had become their friend and hero, who simply invited them to stop what they're doing, follow him, and learn to be fishers of men. They had just had the journey of their lives, witnessing incredible miracles of provision, of healing, of life from death. They heard such groundbreaking and radical wisdom and teaching about love and grace and humility and inclusivity and service and redemption and a new way of living and being. These ordinary guys had been transformed, their values, their outlook, their whole lives merely from following Jesus. They'd had their prejudices, their belief sets, their rituals blown apart by this man who clearly had godly authority, yet in so many ways was ordinary and human, gentle and humble. What an awesome privilege it must have been to be a disciple of Jesus in those times. Yet what an awesome privilege it is today. Yet the journey wasn't without challenge. Jesus, all the while, talking about the future, about a time when he would no longer be with them. 
about an expectation that they would go out and do what Jesus did, about leaving their old lives behind, about sacrifice. Then there was the huge issue of Jesus' critics and opponents, the conflicts, the obstacles put in the way by the Roman authorities and Jewish leaders. And as time went on, that opposition ramped up, culminating, of course, with Jesus' arrest, trial, and ultimately his death sentence. Jesus' divine authority always coming into question by the local authorities. Watching their great friend and leader, this wonderful man of authority and supernatural power, dying helplessly in agony on the cross must have been incredibly traumatic. Then there was the waiting, the mourning, the desolation, and then there was the resurrection. It's hard to imagine where their heads would have been at, where these guys were ordinary human beings, just as we are ordinary human beings. My guess is that they would have been reeling with a whole host of conflicted emotions, elation, confusion, fear, anger, hope, grief, Perhaps not surprising that they worshipped and doubted all at the same time when they met face to face with Jesus on that mountain. The disciples were clearly in a place of transition, a period of not having a clue what had just happened or what was to come. No doubt they were utterly relieved to see Jesus back in the flesh, for I'm sure they knew that life would never return to how it was. They'd have been afraid for their own lives too, I'm sure the Jewish leaders and Roman authorities wanted Jesus out of the picture, and here he was again. They would have known that there would be more opposition ahead and that they too would be targeted. They'd seen the lengths the authorities would go to to silence Jesus and his message, so they had every reason to doubt. So when Jesus summons them to a mountain in Galilee, I wonder what they were expecting. I can kind of relate to those disciples who worshipped yet doubted. I've felt like that recently. Maybe some of you have too. So some weeks I've come here and I've had a real sense of what God is saying and doing and where we're heading. I felt connected, I felt excited, I felt hopeful and I felt at home. But other weeks I felt a weariness and a heaviness. I felt a disconnect and I found myself questioning and anxious about our future as a church and what it might look like and whether the unsettledness will ever settle. But what's heartening here is that Jesus would have known the doubters. He'd have seen and sensed their concerns and fears. I suspect the bolder ones in the group will have had the courage to voice them, which is healthy. Doubters are undoubtedly never alone. They just feel alone. If we want an authentic church, we need to create a culture for the doubters to feel able to articulate those doubts and open up conversation. Yet in spite of their doubts, in spite of their human frailty, Jesus spoke such powerful, affirming, encouraging words to them. He entrusted them to take the baton of the gospel, to run the next leg of the race, to ensure the good news story of God's love didn't fold, but would go way beyond the immediacy of their own lives and their own environment. He knew their context, yet chose them anyway. So what did Jesus say to his, to his followers, and what do we think he meant? I guess what comes next is my take on it. He said this, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The likelihood is, 
that each one of us is here today because of this verse. Because someone somewhere has prayed for you, loved you, cared for you, invited you, seen you, heard you, served you, taught you, shared with you, included you. And that in some way has brought you to Jesus and has led you here to St. Andrews at this time. I wonder, though, whether there would be more of us sat here this morning if we truly understood what Jesus was saying here. You see, I think we, and by me I mean the wider church, not just here at St. Andrews, have made these verses about evangelism, about telling people about Jesus, about proclaiming the gospel message of salvation, and about conversion to Christianity. I wonder if we've made it too much about getting people to a point where they make a decision to follow Jesus, and not enough about how they might go about that journey. And clearly that decision is part of it. Jesus himself, at the start of his ministry, called people to repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance being a conscious decision to live another way, to live differently, to follow, so that God's way is of love, mercy, restoration and redemption, hope, joy and peace. Repentance brings new life, eternal life. So as followers of Jesus, at some point we will have all made the decision to live a different way. But it isn't just a one-off decision. It's not about getting a ticket to heaven, then getting back on with our normal lives. That's not what Jesus was talking about here. He's not talking about converts. Discipleship is about following. It's a lifelong journey. Here we also see that as a mark of that decision, Jesus calls us to be baptized. A tradition of being immersed in water to symbolize a change, a rebirth a renewing and a washing, a new start, repentance. Jesus was himself baptized at the start of his ministry. And baptism requires thought, preparation maybe. It symbolizes a readiness. It's an act of representation of that decision to turn around and live a new way. It's a public one too, and it connects us with fellow believers. One disciple will baptize another. It links us with one another into the so-called fellowship of believers, in other words, into church. Making disciples is about being learners ourselves whilst at the same time gathering others to follow and learn too. That's why we do church. And in doing so, we become church. We do this journey together. We teach and learn at the same time. We follow and lead at the same time. We work and grow and serve and love together as a body, as a family, as a community. And it will often look amateur and messy and chaotic, just as it did with the early church. Those early disciples were clearly far from perfect, and certainly, um, we see, did not have it all together. Yet these were the people that Jesus chose, and the church was his vessel for ensuring the message of love was shared to all nations. And so that's why I wonder if we've sometimes missed the point with this passage. It's important we understand the role we play as church to grow and nurture one another in that lifelong journey of discipleship. It's sad to look back on old church photos to see people who have once come here all fired up in their faith only to fall by the wayside, perhaps when life has brought its challenges. We have to find a way as church to uphold one another, to teach one another, to show mercy to one another and to support one another. Absolutely making that decision to follow Jesus is a wonderful, life-transforming decision that we must celebrate at the start. 
But the Christian life can be a challenging one. Life can be tough. We live in a complex world, in complex times. We will meet hurdles, sometimes huge ones. We will get sick. People we love will get sick. People we love will die. We will struggle with pain, relationship issues, addiction, grief, poor mental health, financial hardship. Becoming a follower of Jesus doesn't grant us a life exemption status. We might believe for and pray for healing or divine intervention, and it's wonderful if and when our prayers are answered in that way. But the truth is, sometimes we have to journey with the suffering, and that's really tough. We have to learn to support one another and live in that tension, and that's one of the reasons we do church. So we know we are called to make disciples, but what does it actually mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Put simply, it means to follow in Jesus' footsteps, to do what Jesus did, to talk like Jesus talked, to love who Jesus loved and how Jesus loved, to be like Jesus. So to understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and to make disciples of Jesus, we need to know who Jesus was, is, and how he lived. And this is why we emphasize the importance of reading the Bible, not for the sake of it, or because it's a good Christian discipline to get into, but because that's where we find Jesus. That's where we gain insight into how he lived. So the four gospel stories, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are a good place to start. Here we, le- we learn that his priority is love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, and with all your mind, he says, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus responds to a question about priority. He then goes on to use the parable of the Good Samaritan to illustrate exactly who our neighbor might be. Put simply, it's the person in front of us. Whatever their need, whatever their background, circumstance, no barriers, no clauses, no exceptions. Worth bearing in mind in an age where debates range over, rage over same-sex marriage, abortion, abortion, refugees, and gun crime. It is this principle of indiscriminate love that must underpin those discussions if indeed we have to have those discussions at all. Jesus always prioritized time with his father. So often after a day's work, whether that be teaching or healing or feeding 5,000 people, he would always head off to be alone with his father. We don't know what he and God talked about, but it was clearly something he prioritized. Therefore, we should do likewise. Cultivating a relationship with God, connection with the father is important. Prayer is a huge topic and looks different for different people. But that's the beauty and opportunity of church. Working out how we pray as individuals and as a community needs to be a priority for us. What else did Jesus do? He restored and transformed. Sight to the blind, hearing for the deaf, mobility to the paralyzed, hope for the hopeless, shelter for the homeless, inclusion for the discriminated against, mercy for the shamed. How do we do that? in our context? What needs restoring where we are? Without blowing our own trumpet, I would say we're reasonably good at this. Lots of what we do here is restorative and transformative. Whether that be the work we do in the network around poverty or in CR around addiction or in our missional communities. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. There's lots we can do. The world we live in is a little bit of a mess. Lots to restore, plenty to get involved with. Isaiah 58, 12 has always been a key verse for us, and I believe it still is. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up 
the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets and dwellings. Let's continue to be a people who seek to transform and restore. Let's keep working towards transformation in our neighbourhoods, in our families and in the places we work. Let's keep sharing and living out God's message of love and mercy to those we meet and to one another. Loving and supporting and encouraging one another as we go. In particular, just as Jesus did, seeking out those on the margins, those who are disempowered, forgotten, dismissed. Let's stand up for justice, advocate for those who aren't being heard. Jesus didn't ever pay lip service. He overturned tables and reset them with a place for everyone, without condition or exception. What else did he do? Well, I guess I could go on forever. He taught, washed feet, served, showed hospitality, listened, healed, invited, humbled, empowered, and ultimately died on the cross as an outrageous expression of love for us. So when Jesus talks about making disciples, he's talking about a lifelong journey of learning to live and love as Jesus lived and loved and encouraging and supporting others to do the same. And for each one of us, the journey of being a disciple will look different because we are all different. Our individual circumstances and context are different. The people we will meet will be different, but the principles are the same. And if we do it together as church, well, imagine what that might actually look like. Jesus sent his disciples to go and minister to all nations. When we picture all nations, I guess what we picture is probably a globe or a world map or an atlas. Perhaps we think about world mission, trips to so-called unchurched places. And that might be part of it. But the majority of us will not be called overseas. Our neighbour is the person in front of us. And of course, when Jesus spoke with his disciples, the world to them would have felt very different. I don't know what they would have pictured by the phrase all nations. I don't know how big their idea of all nations was, but they certainly didn't have the luxury of Google Maps. What we do know, though, is that the penny will have dropped by then that Jesus wanted them to minister not just to their own kind, the Jewish nation, but beyond to the so-called Gentiles, the non-Jewish nations. Jesus likely called them to the mountain in Galilee because that was a place populated, populated by people of all nations to demonstrate that his love and his inv invitation to follow was by no means exclusive. So what might that mean for us? Like I said, the majority of us here are unlikely to be heading too far to share the gospel, and that's okay. For us, all nations might be our neighborhoods, our streets, the, the workplaces we work in, our hangouts. It's not about geographical places, it's about all people. It might simply mean going and chatting to a neighbor or getting involved in food bank or pantry. It might mean speaking up for a group of people who are marginalized. It might mean supporting the rights of women over their own bodies. It might mean walking alongside and welcoming a same-sex couple into our church and even into leadership. It might mean providing in some ways for our refugees or giving our time for our own young people and children. It might mean helping a friend or a stranger. It might mean walking alongside someone in recovery or someone who is grieving. It might be, mean being the best teacher or nurse or secretary or shop assistant or work colleague or school gate parent or volunteer that we can be. 
It might mean forgiving someone who's doing your head in. Here, how we live our own discipleship journey will be different for each one of us. Even within church, we don't do everything together, but it is so much easier knowing that we've got one another's backs. Whilst we can encourage, while we can encourage one another, share stories. And that's the beauty of church. That's why Jesus calls us to gather, to do this as a community, as a body, because that way we really can reach all nations, all people. And finally, we don't do this alone or in our own strength. Jesus says, surely I will be with you always to the end of the age. He doesn't wave us off at the door and close the door behind him. He's omnipresent. His presence spans across all time and all space. Jesus was present from the very beginning of time and will remain for eternity. That's mind-blowing for me, eternity. I can't get my head around it. And of course, Jesus has already reminded us that he speaks as one with sovereign authority, and that authority he imparts to us also. The disciples would have already had glimpses of that authority throughout their journey with him. Early on in his ministry at a wedding where the wine embarrassingly ran out, Mary, Jesus' mom, tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. When the storm ranged around their fishing boat only to abate at his word, the disciples declared in awe, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. Jesus always spoke with authority and led with authority. It was his authority that, of course, led to the local leaders doing all they could to silence and remove him, leading to his death. Throughout his ministry, his authority was questioned and mocked by others, including the devil himself in the wilderness. And, of course, there was the resurrection, the ultimate display of heaven, heavenly authority, leaving no doubt about who Jesus was and under whose authority he lived. Of course, some of us don't always take kindly to authority. Some of us have a tendency to rebel, to see how far we can test those in authority. We might feel we know better. We might disagree with those in authority in our context. And sometimes we might be justified in that. But with Jesus, there is a safety in his authority. The disciples had witnessed Jesus' mix of authority with humility. They knew he was good. Jesus always exerted his authority from a place of love. Here, Jesus is gearing up for his final earthly departure, and as always, he wants to ensure his disciples feel safe and cared for as they enter into their next chapter. He reminds them not only of his authority, he reminds them not only of his authority, which becomes their authority, but of his wonderful eternal presence as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, reminding them that they were a part of something way bigger, eternal, mysterious, reminding them that they are not alone, that he goes with them, that he is within them, that he is indeed Emmanuel, as the prophets promised, meaning God with us. Those parting words didn't offer the disciples many answers. They didn't give much of a clue as to what was ahead. But they did build faith, faith in God's goodness, faith in their Messiah, faith in his calling on their lives, faith in his presence, faith to unite them in their calling to go out and share all they knew of Jesus and his incredible love with others, faith to be church. And so here we are, 2,000 plus years on, 
same God, same Jesus, same love, same need out there, same message, same calling, same church. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, says Jesus. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the earth. Thank you.